You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an Unparalleled Journey with Jason Palmer. And today I have for you a guest, Dr. Christopher Scott Wyatt. He is an autistic self-advocate and father of two neurodiverse daughters. He's earned a doctorate while researching online educations for students with autism spectrum disorders. His experiences living with physical and neurological differences shape his parenting. Dr. Wyatt consults with schools, businesses, and nonprofit organizations on issues of autism, neurodiversity, and active inclusion. Scott, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Oh, man, it's good to talk to you. I love to talk to people who have real-world experience in this stuff that we're living in. And I know that you have adopted a couple girls um, who have their own their own difficulties, their, their own struggles. Um, and I know that you yourself are also autistic, correct? Yes. So that puts you in one of those weird positions where you are dealing with something that you've dealt with your entire life. That's I'm assuming having, having been a struggle. Cause I don't know exactly how old you are, but looking at you, you're not much younger than me. And I know that my experience in that, in that time of life, we weren't really looking at any kind of neurodiversity thing as something to help with when I was a kid. Um, I'm quite certain I would have had at least one or two diagnoses if they had taken the time to do it when I was a kid, but they kind of swept that stuff under the rug and didn't really help kids with it a lot. And we're in a new world where, well, we are at least acknowledging that and beginning to try and help kids with a lot of that stuff. Some school districts do a great job with it. I have a friend of mine who his son goes to a school. I think they live in Utah now, and he goes to a school that's that's actually very attuned to his son's needs, and they work really hard to help him. And um, we've also seen the other side of that, where schools didn't really want to help a whole lot. So let's talk about, let's talk about kids who come to, to, to difficult places. Um, like, like, you know, you and I probably did as kids ourselves and as parents of kids who are walking that road today. So what brought you into the foster world as, as a uh, father? My wife and I were living in Pittsburgh where I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon university as a visiting professor. My wife had two pregnancies that did not go to term, and we talked about other paths, and we decided that the foster to adopt process might be a reasonable approach for us because we had the means and the space and the ability to support some children with possibly special needs. We went in knowing that by choosing foster care that we were very likely to have children who had suffered trauma and that might have other problems because that is the nature of foster care. 
But as I said, we, we are very blessed to have the means and we hoped the experiences to prepare us. I think that even coming from the background that I have and, and having the wife I have, the means that we have, I still think we overestimated our abilities to cope and to prepare for the, the journey that was almost four years of foster care before the adoption was finalized. I believe that we envisioned one thing and in large part that was true, that it was going to be difficult and it was gonna take time, but we did not anticipate that it would take from 2015 to 2019 to adopt the girls. Uh, we didn't really understand the uncertainties that go along with all of the legal proceedings. And even though we understood neurodiversity, we understood a fraction of what children in the foster adopt system might come with. In my case, I have neurological and physical disabilities. And I thought, oh, I'm prepared. I understand autistic traits. I understand sensory processing issues. I have a palsy, par partial paralysis. I thought, I'm more than prepared. I can, I can do this. I've, I understand special needs and accommodation. It's my research field. But what I wasn't ready for was the, the magnitude of trauma, the magnitude of needs that children in foster care come with because those early years are so formative and they are so essential to proper development that when a child has suffered neglect both uh, throughout the pregnancy and then early childhood for those first years, uh, maybe two years, three years, depending on the child, that child will have lifelong consequences. And it, it's just so hard to imagine. We're getting a child who might be two or three or even younger. And yet that first year or two has so shaped that young mind and that young body that it is so much more than any textbook or any lecture or any expertise can prepare you for. Yeah, I, I'm going to step into my nerd space just a little bit. Um, as I understand Linux, Linux was an operating system a guy tried to build to uh, kind of compete with Windows way back in the day. And, and it became this program where a group of people created this amazing little little operating system and he opened up free source to anybody who wanted it and you could have the source software code and develop whatever you wanted with it and over time they got to the point where the only thing you really weren't allowed to touch was the kernel the foundation of how it was built of how it's supposed to work and i i see that as you know that kernel is that part that is built oftentimes in in utero and in very young childhood and a lot of times we get a and a kernel that has been messed with a bit. The, the beginning processing ideas, the, the way that we see the world is different from the way others see the world. And when it comes to kids who've seen high trauma, a lot of times it means that they're going to respond in ways that don't make sense. And because that's what the program is trying to do. They're trying to make certain that the program, the programming world could still use this thing and it would always work the same way. As long as the kernel was right, you could operate within that. But when you have a kid with high trauma at a young age, they react so differently. It doesn't make any sense at all to you. When we're talking about foster care, foster care happens because 
there was a traumatic event, maybe a separation from a parent, a death of a parent. In the case of our children, there was a history of neglect and abandonment. And nobody goes into foster care because situations are ideal. Trauma has a way of rewiring the brain so that I think we need to admit that PTSD itself is a form of neurodiversity. I believe that RAD, the reactive attachment disorder that we see in many of our foster children is, again, it's a rewiring, it's, a, it's an adaptation. When we see anxiety, we see even ADHD, I think, in many of these cases is a result of the environment. Add into it how many children we see with suspected, if not necessarily documented, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders or fetal alcohol syndrome. These children come to us having been through situations that those of us who even came from difficult spaces ourselves can't always imagine. We just cannot imagine how horrible it must have been. And then they get separated from the family that they think is normal and placed in another family all at various ages. I, I can't even imagine what that's like as a teenager, but for our children, you're looking at ages two and three. That was something that will always affect them. Even, even to this day, they are afraid of being separated from us. There is still that separation anxiety. There is still that fight or flight response to various stressors. There is no way to overcome those early experiences. You have to integrate them into your being. And, and young children aren't there yet. You can do all kinds of supports, but the best thing you can do is, is nurture them until they're old enough to start adapting to and understanding what they endured as, as children. And I don't think you can ever ask them to just forget it and move on. You have to ask them to integrate it and build from there. Well, I mean, you can ask, but they're never going to give that to you, right? No. <laughs> you know, just the other day, one of our younger boys had said something to my wife that he gets nervous anytime we, we were more than a couple miles away from the house because, and, and these are kids who came to us at very young ages, either right out of the hospital or, or the other one was about a year old when he came to stay with us. Um, but, but it still affects them. That's those places where it's, it doesn't make sense. What dude, what are you concerned about? Like you're with us. You know, I've got you. I'm here. You don't have to worry about about any of that. But it's it's there. It's not my job to, to explain to him that it doesn't make sense, but to help him work through that. And my wife and I are very aware of the fears that the girls have of being abandoned or being moved again. In both of our cases, we've had health issues. My wife was diagnosed early on in the foster care placement with thyroid cancer and she had to go and have treatment and radiation. And, you know, so right off the bat, the girls were like, okay, mom's not in the house. And that's early on. And my wife made a full recovery. She's cancer free, um, has been for many years now, but things like that, where I've been in the hospital for minor things or, um, you know, minor, depending on how you look at it, but where I've been in the hospital, it can be something as simple as a, a hernia or whatever, but if we're gone overnight, they panic because, you know, will mom and dad come back? If my wife travels for a business trip, they want to make sure that every night they can talk to her on FaceTime or on the phone. Children who have been through foster care will always 
I think fear that separation or that being taken, that losing of security, and they will hoard things, they will stuff things wherever they can to keep those memories. And for those of us who have worked with foster kids, you, it's hard for us to accept, well, why are you stashing all these little trinkets? Why are you stashing your stuff? Why are you hiding things? But they really, really crave that security and that stability. And we need to respect that and understand where that comes from. And not every teacher, not every support professional, and not even every social worker we've worked with understands how anxious and fearful the children are of losing the stability that they've had for the last, you know, since 2015, they, that they still fear that they might not have that stability. You know, early on in our foster journey, actually the very first two kids who ever came to our house, they ended up staying long-term. We adopted them. But I remember when they were fairly, very young, my wife and I had not had a night out for a long time. Um, and as most foster parents know, like date night becomes this, this, dream of something that used to happen sometimes and i had talked to my older sister and she was she was going to keep the kids all overnight and i mean both of the kids who were who were with us in the in the foster system and and our other biological kids all you know they were all going to go stay with her that night and i surprised my wife with a night out and it was great and wonderful but that evening i talked to my sister when and she told me she said well when i laid them down for bed she's like Janaya looked at me and she's, she was probably four or five at the time. Um, she's still with us. She is our, she is what, 15 now, about almost turning 16. But Janaya looked at her and said, are you my new mommy now? Oh, gee. Right. And I'm like, oh, here's a story. I can't tell my wife until after this evening is over, but you know, she'll, she'll never lay down and go to sleep now. But, but it speaks volumes to what she had experienced up to that point. We were, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate because we hit COVID as soon as, you know, 2019, we adopted final uh, adoption and then COVID hit. So the idea of a date night or anything like that was obviously out because we were in lockdown. Even here in, in central Texas, we were in lockdown uh, well until 2022, Travis County, uh, Austin area, schools were closed or virtual. So the girls had, these early years, that kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you know, now we, now they're in fifth and third, but they endured all of this at home. There were no play dates. There were no classmates. There was nothing. There was no respite. And now that there is, we're going through that transition of, you know, you have friends, maybe you could go have a play date, or maybe your friends could come over here, or maybe we could go to the YMCA and, and, do swimming and do basketball they are still in that stage of please stay don't leave i want to know you're in the stands i want to see you i want to check on you so the covid experience delayed that that normalcy of going over for sleeping at the grandparents or the cousins or the friends so they haven't had that slow adjustment into separation so now that they are approaching 11 and 10, they haven't had that experience of being apart from mom and dad, except for family travel or business travel for mom or dad. So they're not used to that. And one of the really difficult challenges we're facing is that 
some of their friends want to do sleepovers. Some of the, you know, the grandparents want to spend time with them and they're not ready because COVID not only did that happen, but of course you're dealing with the foster situation. So now we're trying to make up for developmental delays that have been compounded by the pandemic. Yeah. And that was kind of a, uh, a global trauma, if you will, yeah. across the world. And especially here, depending on where you were as out now, I'll be honest. I live in, in Missouri. I'm in central Missouri and Missouri is the show me state for a reason. We, we were, you know, I think the, the pandemic was much worse in the higher populated areas than what yeah. we experienced out here. And so it wasn't as dramatic of a change but it was it was still a change for everybody across the U.S. to deal with these things, and it, you do delay that ability to grow through that when kids experience something like that. And unfortunately, for two or three years, you the nightly news, the website updates, the school updates were all about how many new COVID cases, how much you know pain and suffering is occurring, and. For children who are already traumatized, it is not the worst of situations because obviously being somewhere like Ukraine or something like that is, is obviously even more traumatic than, than COVID was. But for our children, every news thing was, okay, the reopening of school is being delayed again. The hospitals are full. The, you know, the shops can't open yet except for outside dining. And so these delays, I think, it, it affected children who need socialization. Our children, if I were to go through the list of things that they experienced, right, we've got PTSD, RAD, as I said, reactive attachment disorder, disinhibited social engagement. They have the child neglect, the child abuse, ADHD, all those things that we can talk about. And then the list goes on and on, as, as you know, in foster care. And, and then you're telling them, we, well, you need these social skills. I want you to socialize. I want you to learn to have friends and how to trust mom and dad will be around and become independent. So you'll ride your bike around the neighborhood or whatever. And because we're in Austin, which is a city of, you know, it's, it's obviously not a small town. We're looking at a million plus people, I guess 1.3 million in greater Austin. The, as you said, when you're in a populated area with high congestion, you, the stores were closed. And even when they did reopen, everyone was masked and behind plexiglass. They still are at the local Costco, right? You go to Costco, they're behind a plexiglass shield with their masks on still. Um, I just had to go to the doctor and the doctor is still, you know, require the mask. The nurse is still behind plexiglass. This how do you teach your children to read faces, to see smiles, to, to recognize the world when the world is behind a max and, and a, a glass barrier? It's just the, the trauma has yet to end. And for foster children who really need those social skills and need that sense of normalcy, this ongoing trauma is so frustrating. In our schools, if your schools are still behind little dividers and the teachers can't touch the children, can't hug them. They can't make, you know, closer contact that delays language trend uh, language transitions because children learn by watching us speak, being read to all these things are being delayed. And I still haven't come with, come up with any great solution. Um, even as someone who studied online education, I think online education does not meet the needs of many special education students. It just doesn't. 
Amen. It is self-directed. You have to have executive function. You have to remember, I got to do my homework. You, I have to check my calendar. I have to answer my email. The people who succeeded online education don't have problems keeping dates. They don't have problems doing the homework on time. They don't have ADHD. Online education is for people who are self-directed, self-driven, self-motivated. They have that intrinsic need to succeed. I don't know about your children and, and all of their needs, but my children, the idea of, oh, I've got to remember to log onto the computer, turn in my homework, log into this, log into that, remember these passwords. Oh, gosh, no, it's not going to happen. And we're expecting that of second and third graders during the pandemic. That's why we decided to homeschool. It was just way too traumatic to do virtual learning. And, and that deprived them of being in a classroom. It deprived them of classmates. This... It's hard enough to be a foster parent. It became much harder during the pandemic. I will agree with that 100%. Um, our little guy, our youngest son, um, he, he had his own trauma story and, and um, you know, came to stay with us right after birth. But, um, but he was going into kindergarten as the schools were going to full, uh, full lockdown and all virtual. And I love Frankie to death. This kid is a ball of joy. 80% of the time, 20% of the time, he, he's a difficult kid, right? I mean, that's uh, to be fair. I, I was probably a way more 50, 50 kid myself than he is. But, but the thing is, is when we try to do online school with him, he failed miserably. He, he couldn't sit in front of a screen and, and pay attention. And, and uh, it was just a huge struggle. And today we're still seeing some of that Yes, um, you know, we're working through a 504 plan for him. We have another kid that we're working through an IEP plan for him because it is so difficult, you know, and you mentioned the masks, you know, the littlest one we have right now with us, uh, she was born in the hospital and, and then she was left in the hospital and 45 days in, we got a phone call because she is biologically related to one of the kids in our house. And when I walked in to the hospital that afternoon after they called us, I get down there and the nurse says, you know, you have to have the mask on the hospital, but when you're in the room, you can take it off. Actually, we encourage you to take it off because even the labor and delivery room, all the humans she's ever seen have had a mask on and she's, she needs to see smiles. She needs to see expressions and all that. And so as I'm coming in the room with this little baby and I'm meeting her and I'm taking this mask off and I'm thinking, oh my God. The first human, full human faces poor baby will ever see is my ugly mug. How terrifying is that? You know, and I laugh about it a little bit, but the truth is, is that's a traumatic difficulty for kids. And I think that the need for bonding is so high in the foster kids that the masks and the way that school was handled, as I've said, school can just be another source of trauma for special needs students. It's just yet one more trauma, even in the best of circumstances and the, and the pandemic made it worse. And now that the pandemic is ending, at least here in central Texas, in Pennsylvania, where we used to live in Minnesota, the teacher shortage, the paraprofessional shortage, the situation has gotten worse post pandemic because many people who had thought about becoming teachers bailed during the pandemic, they're like, well, I'm not going to clear my credential. I'm not going to go in. People took early retirement because they didn't like teaching virtually. So now we have 
a teacher shortage that is exacerbated by the pandemic at a time when our students need paraprofessionals, they need counselors, they need dyslexia specialists, learning specialists, social workers, nurses, and school districts just cannot or will not pay the money required to hire those people and retain them. Unfortunately, I understand that some people go into education early and we need them right now, but an early in their career teacher or someone on an emergency credential who hasn't been trained to work with special education, hasn't been trained to be trauma aware, who hasn't been trained for all of the learning disabilities, throwing those young students now into a classroom post pandemic with all of the challenges is unfair both to that new teacher and those students. But we have lost the experienced special ed teachers. They've just walked away. They've said enough, I'm done. Yeah, and I can't say as I blame them because seeing what, what they're dealing with is, oof, that's, that's a tough thing to, to, to walk through. And, and with the, the pay rates, it's not like they were walking away from a six-figure salary. I talked to a teacher today who is delivering pizza part-time to supplement a teacher's pay. This is so unacceptable to me. It is horrifying that someone can earn more working at a fast food place delivering food than teaching in a classroom special needs students. You know, we're looking at a time now where a teacher can earn, depending on the state and the cost of living, anywhere from 50 to 80,000. But down at that 50,000 range, you've got restaurant managers earning 70 and 80,000. And if you're carrying student debt, if you're working the hours required, doing IEPs, 504 plans, you're doing the continuing education, you're doing the outreach with parents. I can see where a lot of teachers, especially in states where they don't even pay the 50,000, are saying enough, I can't afford my student debt, I can't afford the stress, I can't afford to be a parent myself and they walk away. For foster kids, this becomes a challenge because every year it's a new teacher. Sometimes halfway through the year, it's a new teacher, which is something we've experienced. Eventually, you just can't do it. We can't do this constant shuffling because our kids need stability and the schools aren't even stable right now. They're going through principal, you know, a new principal every year or new counselors every few months. Our children need stability, and unfortunately, our schools are demonstrating that they can't retain and maintain a stable environment for the kids who need it most. It's definitely a challenge, and I don't know what we can do with with that. You know, um, I have no solutions for the bigger problem. All I know is that as a, as a parent, a foster parent, adoptive parent, as we handle some of these neurodiverse issues with these kids, the only thing I can really do most days is just to give them that stability inside the home. But that requires a lot of intentional work on our part to hand that to kids on a regular basis. And if you're a foster parent, in depending on the state and the situation of the child and what you are going through, early on in our experience, those early four years where they were foster kids, we had very little say in their medical care, what their educational supports were because they had a court appointed advocate, which 
they have a heavy caseload and they can't give you the attention that's necessary. We didn't have the power to sign things or to approve things. Every time we gave a medication, we had to keep a medication log. We had to get everything approved. And so even if we as foster parents saw that this school's not meeting our needs or this child needs something, all we could do was tell the assigned advocate who would then go back to the court appointed attorney who would then go to the, the judge or the family court. And it's just, it's so frustrating. And then you, you layer in a pandemic into all of this. You're the parent, but you're not able to parent. Um, thankfully, once the adoption cleared, you know, now we can deal with the medical. Now we can deal with the IEP. Now we can do what in Texas is called an ARD, which is an IEP meeting. The individualized education program, there is nothing worse than saying, well, we're the foster parent, we can't really tell you anything except we can take the paperwork to the, you know, to the court. Now as, now as the adoptive parent, we have more power. But even as a, as a parent of legal rights, and even if you're the birth parent, these IEPs, these 504s, it's very difficult to advocate for your child in a way that's constructive and positive and that you feel like the school's buying in. It's... It's a battle no matter what. But as a foster parent, it was twice as hard because we were there with no power. Yeah, you're kind of you're kind of that that kid who stands at the counter at the fast food joint trying to explain why they took all the fish off the menu. And this guy really wants a fish sandwich. And and hey, man, I'm just a kid who hands food out the window. Right. That's that's who we are. We're the guys at the bottom of the food chain here. We don't have any power to really do a whole lot. We're just the, the one who meets the public and who meets the, the people with needs. The power we have as foster parents and then even foster adopt parents, depending on situations, the, the power we have is to be as stable as the kids need to tell them everything that we can to be honest with them. But all we can be is the stability they need. And that's not easy at all. And even now that we're the adoptive parents, we deal with um, at least here in Texas and in Pennsylvania, we still do with the adoption system because we receive the stipends, the insurance, the supports through the foster adopt program. So we're still even now at the mercy of the foster adopt system, even as the adoptive parents, because it's the state insurance. It's the state, even in, even in Texas now, the state of Pennsylvania is the one that handles our foster stipends and our supplements to get them into the programs they need, the supports they need. So even though there's a clear adoption, we're still dealing with the state of Pennsylvania because they were foster adopt. It's, it's like it never ends. And that's something they don't tell you going in. It sounds like, oh, you're going to adopt a kid and you're going to be the adoptive parent and you're going to have all these rights. And the reality is that you're always, at least until they're I don't know, what is it, until they're 18 or whatever, uh, you're still in a system. You're, you can't escape the system. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us, if we could figure out how to escape the gov any governmental system, we'd oh. be more than happy to step away and get out from under their thumb. We did a screening, a health screening for our youngest, I think in January, I would need to look it up. It was January or February. We are still waiting for the results because the, the state 
funding for that test hasn't all worked its way through the system to the doctor that did the neuropsych eval. And, and we could have paid out of pocket and, you know, it would have been like, okay, fine, just get it done. But we have to follow the rules. We have to submit the paperwork. We have to let the state of Pennsylvania know because they were foster through Pennsylvania, you know, here's what we did. Here's how, and it's just, there's, there's a strange sense of, of powerlessness at times. It doesn't mean that, that we regret anything. It just means that sometimes you're battling systems that aren't there for your needs or the child's needs. They, they create all these safety nets under the guise of we're there to support the child. But what it really does is create a lot of extra barriers to getting the supports. I would, I would much rather just get, uh, you know, the stipend or even no stipend and just be told, okay, your parents, you're done. You know, now we can go get the counselor we need. Now we can go get the, the services we need, the diagnoses we need. Um, but that's just not how it works. And that's just, you know, it's, it is what it is. Um, as I said, the best you can do is love the child and work with the child and tell the child sometimes we are trying to get something done. I'm sorry. It's taking a little bit extra, you know, and this, and we even tell our girls, this is reality. Sometimes the systems are broken and the adults don't listen to each other. And, you know, that's okay. We're, we're here for you and we will support you and we'll just patiently wait out the system, however long it takes. Yeah. It's one thing that we've found in our, in our journey here is that, you know, I have private insurance through my regular job. And once the kids are adopted, <clears throat> I can move them onto my insurance and they can carry state insurance as well which has been a big benefit sometimes because there are some things I'm not willing to wait in that line, in that line for state insurance to do. And I'll go to the doctor's office and say, here, here's the insurance we have. And we have this insurance, whichever one works. And usually because we're, as I understand it, it's always been that because they were adopted to the foster system in the state of Missouri, there's supposedly a, some wording in there that says, that the state insurance is a primary payer. And that's one of the very few instances. And then the private insurance will pick up whatever the state doesn't. And so it's, we've had some issues with, with, you know, doctors or professionals being paid and then they come back and ask questions, but, but we just keep working through that, but it's, it's been a real challenge for sure. And I, I think the question that I had to come to is while yes, it is difficult. Is it worth the fight? And that's where we came to. Yeah. It just means I'm going to have more gray hair a little sooner than, than I otherwise would have, but it's worth a fight for the kids. I think that those of us who go into the foster system, we know it's going to be work. I, what I was not prepared for was that once they were adopted, the work didn't end. I kept thinking, Oh, well, we're the parents. They have, you know, our last name, we have the new birth certificates, new social security numbers, life will now be easy. And the reality is that it's easier, but not easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as long as I can keep the mentality that, yes, it's still going to be difficult, but it's worth it. I keep myself from getting too far down the, down the, uh, tyrannical anti-government road. <laughs> I'm sometimes tempted because uh, sometimes the government system is they're so interested in their own paperwork. They forget there's humans on the other side of it. And 
that's true in education. It's true in the medical care. It's true in their, their therapies, their mental health supports. It is amazing. And the flip side of that is that we only have to deal with these things every couple of weeks. And I know that sounds like a lot to any parent, you know, every two or three weeks we're dealing with an insurance issue. Um, but that's not as bad as it could be, I guess. You know, my wife was dealing with an insurance issue on something today where she took notes and she was routed to nine different phone numbers today, nine different calls dealing with an insurance thing. And this is unfortunately our system. We don't have a system where it's single payer or something where we just go and we give them our United Health card and we're done. You know, no, we have to give the state insurance card, the United Health insurance card. They have to figure out who's primary, who's secondary. They, these things are annoyances. And I'm sure there's a simpler way to do everything. But yeah, today was, you know, a lot of time on the phone for my wife and I had to deal with some things and annoyances. Yes. But are we going to let the annoyances eat us alive or are we going to think, okay, I'm going to go play ball with the kids. I'm going to go throw a Frisbee with the kids. And those annoyances are what they are. And they're every few weeks. And we deal with a couple of hours of annoyances in return for, you know, what's going to be a lifetime of, of being a parent. And those annoyances, it's, it's a price to pay, but it's worth it to me. The way I look at it is all of us who became foster parents did it for a reason, whatever your motivation is. For me, it was thinking we could help children who might have some special needs that we would have that time commitment, but we could make a difference. And I still believe we can make a difference. We're giving these children a much better future than they would have had. They're adding so much to my life. They're adding so much to my wife's life. You know, that we're a family that my, I know that my father-in-law loves the girls to death. Um, I know my parents like having grandkids. It's all worth it. It's just, it's very easy sometimes when you're on the phone to the insurance or the healthcare provider or the mental health provider to think, please let this end. And there are times where, yes, you want to just get, get this over with. Just let me hang up and move on. And you just have to realize that those four hours are just four hours out of however many hours there are in a week or a month or a year. Okay, four hours gone. But yeah, it's annoying. But, you know, it's life. It is for sure a challenge. And I know that, um, you know, you have kind of stepped into that arena of trying to help people. You have your own podcast and a, and a blog as well, right? Uh, yeah, I, I do a, a podcast. It's called Perspectives on Neurodiversity. Most of it is about education and my experiences with the girls. The, the reality is, is that education is broken. And I don't know, I, I, I can say I don't have any fixes for it. But I think it's important to tell parents what is or isn't um, the educational reality. One thing about doing perspectives on neurodiversity is I'm trying to bring in more uh, young women, more uh, people of color, more diversity, because the reality is neurodiverse diagnoses are more common among boys, especially uh, Caucasian white children tend to get the diagnoses more. 
there's just more awareness that boys get autism diagnoses as were girls. They overlook it. They also overlook ADHD with girls. So having two daughters now, I'm seeing this side of things. And so I want to talk more about that. Also have the Autistic Me blog, which I've done since 2007. When I started blogging in 2007, the Autistic Me was easy to claim because nobody was talking about autism except in hushed tones. And, you know, everyone was still talking about cures and what was going on and nobody wanted to admit that these are neurological differences that the wiring is difficult to undo our children with trauma it you, you don't just rewire the brain you just don't ptsd doesn't go away you learn to adapt with it adhd doesn't go away and i believe that autistic traits ocd traits they don't go away what you do is you learn to adapt and you learn to accommodate yourself. So the Autistic Me blog has gone from this tiny little thing that nobody was talking about to now there are hundreds, if not dozens, you know, thousands of bloggers out there, podcasters out there talking about autism, talking about neurodiversity. I think there's far more awareness now of PTSD, especially among uh, those who have served our nation. And that discussion is helping because it's bringing to light children and other people with PTSD. So in a lot of ways, neurodiversity now is not as hidden as it was in 2007. Now we're far more aware of, of the brain being changed by trauma, being changed by the environment. As I said, fetal alcohol syndrome, it's a child doesn't recover from those horrible choices that a birth parent made. They just don't. Um, and you know, if, if you work in the foster care system, we see these children with fetal alcohol. We see these children with unfortunate, um, unfortunately, ex exposure to narcotics. And those children are forever changed. And so neurodiversity, whether it's the blog or the podcast, what I'm trying to do with perspectives on neurodiversity and the autistic me is I'm trying to say that this is how we are. This is how some of these children are. This is how some of our loved ones are. This is how we are. And we have to adapt. We have to learn social skills. But at the same time, we want the world to learn to accept us and our differences and to understand that we come from difficult places that may have shaped our neurologies and we're doing the best we can. So if anyone's interested, they can look for the podcast Perspectives on Neurodiversity on Facebook, look for The Autistic Me. And I really hope that what we're doing, just like what you're doing with the unparalleled journey being you know, all about foster care, it is an, un, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like being a parent and there's really nothing like being a foster parent. <laughs> and then you add in what we see as foster parents, all this neurodiversity, what we see is amazing and what the children overcome in many ways, these are heroic children. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have seen so many kids overcome so many things that, that I look at and think there's no way I would have survived this as a kid. I, I wouldn't have had it in me, but you know, we see the kids who, who don't have a choice, but to walk these roads. And fortunately, I guess, I guess we'll call it. Fortunately, they don't know that there's a different road to walk. They only have the experience of theirs. And, and, you know, I think it's important to do like what we're talking about things. We are talking about things you're talking about because this is their life. 
And you have to understand sometimes the people that you're dealing with on a regular basis have a totally different life experience than you do. And hopefully we come out, come out the other side with the kinder, better world, because I mean, I wish I could say that things like Facebook has made the world a kinder, more empathetic place, but I don't know. think I could say that as, as a true statement today. When I started blogging, I had the idealism of an early internet user, right? I, I started off on the, the Usenet and CompuServe and then America Online and all those things that occurred in the 80s and 90s. And I kept thinking that we were going to have these communities that came together. But in the foster care community, in the autism community, in neurodiversity in general, what has happened are these battles between parents and self-advocates and people who demand a cure and people who demand different ways of approaching vaccines and different religious beliefs. And instead of just saying that our children need us and we need to love them, all these little battles occur. I don't care if someone's a, a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, I just don't care. What I want them to do is to respect my child for who my child is. For, you know, I want them to accept my fifth grader and my third grader and to show them respect. And I don't have time for these debates about whose fault is it that the school doesn't have money or whose fault is it that this or that is happening. What I want is a world in which my child has a, a fair shot to be who they are. And that's it. I, I just, I don't have time for most of the debates. And quite honestly, when I go and speak, too many people come up and they say things like, well, how do you feel about this, that, or the other. And I'll say, look, you're the parent. You choose for your child. I will choose for my child. What I want us to do is I'll love our children. That's it. You mean I'm not supposed to hate you because you don't have the same political affiliation that I might have? Gosh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> hey, I, I wish we could figure that out. I, I live in Texas. Uh, I love Texas. Um, much of my family has been here for 40 years. Uh, it's, but it is a shame that, uh, people will always ask, Oh, you're from Austin. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay. You know, Austin, Houston, whatever the little blue dots in the red state, that doesn't matter. What matters is that we're all seeking the same thing for our children, which is the best possible schools, the best possible healthcare access to college, I hope for my girls, I hope they study hard and do well and that I can afford to pay for their college. Right. <laughs> I, I just, it, it's so heartbreaking that we have divided ourselves and splintered along issues that it, it just, it just breaks my heart that we just can't say our children don't need to be parts of, of our little debates, our, our childish tantrums online the reality is I don't share many of the ideas of the left or the right. I just want to be a parent and want to be left alone. And that's what I try to tell other parents, do the best you can. I'll do the best I can. And let's just all celebrate that we should be able to parent the way we see fit in our households. Yeah. The only thing I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you on is Austin, Texas. I'm pretty certain there's a La Quinta Inn down on Sixth Street, somewhere near the top of Sixth Street, that I they might still have my picture hanging up down there. I don't think I'm supposed to go there. That was 20 years ago, and a long, <laughs> long time, and a young wild uh, army kid who did 
was involved with some stupid stuff back in the day. Well, Austin is, is, is been a, a very welcoming place for myself and my family. Um, and, and you know what, no matter where I've gone to speak, no matter what state, no matter which school district, I think people want to learn about what our, what our situations are. They want to learn from us. And I thank you for, for doing what you're doing with the foster care and unparalleled journey. And I hope that all of us can work together to make a better future for these children who deserve so much more than what they've been through. Absolutely. I appreciate that. So if people want to reach out to you and, um, and find your stuff or maybe invite you as a speaker to their event, how would they get a hold of you? They can write to autistic me at tamari.com T A M E R I.com. They can also, as I said, visit the Perspectives on Neurodiversity podcast on all of the platforms, iTunes, et cetera, Apple Podcasts now. And on Facebook, just look for Autistic Me, also on Twitter. Okay, and we will make certain that we get links to all that thrown down to the show notes so you guys can just scroll down and click a link to find Scott on on whatever platform it is you're looking for. And I want to thank you again today for your time, man, because this is the stuff that people need to talk about. It's been an honor. Thank you. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Scott's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a t- virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at Foster Care Nation. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.